danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will Hello and welcome to episode 372 of the Thinking Poker Podcast. From Owings Mills, Maryland, I am Andrew Brokus. I will be joined shortly by Carlos Welch in Nevada and also by our guest, Lee Jones. Uh, you may have heard Lee on the podcast before. He was our guest way back on episode 9 and also with Tommy Angelo on episode 313. Uh, Lee has been the director of the poker room for uh, both Poker Stars and Cake Poker. Later was the director of poker communications for Poker Stars. Uh, the author of Winning Low Limit Hold'em, uh, one of the uh, early poker, poker strategy books, and um, has I mean, among many things that he's worked on, uh, has worked on the Poker Simple videos, which are available on YouTube with Tommy Angelo, and you can hear us discuss those on episode 313. There will be lots of strategy discussion in our conversation with Lee today, so we're not going to have a dedicated strategy segment. I do want to make sure folks know that you can get daily strategy segments from us at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily, and in fact, you will hear hear uh, Lee sing the praises of those segments uh, while we are discussing strategy with him today. So uh, please do support us, patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily, and please enjoy our interview with Lee Jones. Lee Jones, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so very much. It's it's absolutely delightful to be here, and I'm I'm honored to get a return visit. Yeah, what are, what have you been up to since we last spoke? Like, I think it's been <laughs> over two years now. Well, Tommy and I were on together, and I just went back and checked in the Wayback Machine, and I think I was on your podcast number five. Yes, you were one of our very first guests. <laughs> <laughs> like, talk about being an OG. Yeah. How many <laughs> lifetimes ago was that for you? That's, uh, that's, well, it's actually just kind of one lifetime ago. Um, you know, I'm, I, I'm faking it being retired right now. Um, I seem to do a poor job of it, but I, I no longer work for the man. So I guess by that definition, I am retired. Um, yeah, you know, in terms of poker, what I'm doing, well, first, I have to get the really important stuff out of the way, which is two days ago, my bluegrass band had a gig at a restaurant in Berkeley. Nice. And that is just like, when I'm playing music in front of people, that's my best life, 100%. Nice. Congratulations. Thank you. It's, it's, uh, that really is true, and I will tell all the listeners, find your best life and then do everything in your power to spend as many days as possible living it. That's, <laughs> that's good advice. It is. And so anyway, yeah, I was out playing music and that 
that was just glorious. Uh, yeah, in terms of poker, um, I guess I, there's two two things that I'm paying attention to. One is I'm coming back to really studying the game. And actually, I've got some strategy questions. If you guys could just wrap them all up and put them in a strategy opening section for the podcast. Um, but I'm doing that and just sort of studying the game. I, I don't know if anybody or all your listeners know my background, but when I was at PokerStars, I spent pretty much 15 years thinking about the business of the game. And we'll get to that in a second, because I have many thoughts about the business of the game. But now I'm out of the business of being in the business of the game, and I'm back to just being a poker player, which is much more fun. Um, and so I am studying the game. Um, I've gotten in with the group called the Hand History Lounge that Benton Blakeman runs. And so I am every day I'm reviewing people's hands and putting my own hands in there and getting feedback on them. And I find that to be invaluable because it's constantly, and I'm sure you guys experience this too, because it is constantly bringing up new concepts or maybe even more importantly, just reinforcing old lessons. And so when I get into a situation, I probably only have to go back two or three days to think of a hand I saw and say, oh, this is like that one. And so be like that. Yeah, and I think just more generally having study uh, at at the forefront of of your mind, you know, like kind of being in, in poker mode keeping yourself in in poker mode even if the immediate information like the actual thing that you discussed in that hand isn't necessarily relevant just kind of like having recently worked that muscle is going to make your your future work more productive yes and to that point um i'm 64 years old and i am very aware that i am not at the peak of my cognitive game right and never will be again and my goal is to keep my cognitive abilities as strong as possible for as long as possible. So I do words with friends and I, you know, like whatever it is, right? But this, there is nothing like studying poker to really force yourself to keep your cognitive skills sharp. And so it's, it's just a, it's an all around good thing for, for me as a human being. And what was the impetus for, um, I mean, so you're not in the poker industry anymore. Uh, playing live music for a live audience is your best life. Uh, why poker at all anymore? Because, and I'm quoting Jason Somerville here, nobody loves poker more than Lee Jones does. <laughs> <laughs> you have been at it longer than uh, most people. I, You know, I have been at it longer. Do you know how... Do you know how old Winning Low Limit Hold'em is? Nineteen ninety. Carlos, how did how did you know that? I'm staring at your email where you told me that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, twenty. Did you like how I asked it with a question mark, like I was coming off the top, the yeah, top really, of my head? Yeah. Well done, Mister Interviewer. Um, yeah, twenty-eight years old, which is just absurd, right? I mean, Carlos, you were twelve when I wrote that book. Yeah. So, I mean. Uh, yeah, I've been playing poker forever, and I have never, ever lost my love for the game. And there were times when the business could kind of get to be a drag, as you can imagine. 
but I still just love the game. And so talking with you guys, like I listen, and here's a plug for you. I listen to the daily podcast with my coffee every morning and it's great. And I just love hearing the hands and I love thinking about poker and I love playing the game. And I haven't played live. I, I snuck out a couple of times to try it and then just went, oh, no, thank you. And then in the last two years and I miss it terribly. But um, I just love poker. I, I love everything about it. Okay, I'm confused by that statement. You said that you, um, when you went to play live, your reaction was, uh, but then you said you miss it terribly. Oh, yeah, it, my reaction was, uh, because of COVID. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, see, normally my reaction uh, is because <laughs> of live poker itself. I thought that's what you meant. No, uh, no, no. <laughs> No, I mean, you do, every once in a while, you do get the jerk at the table. And I, it's like I forget about the jerks at the table because I love the game so much. Yeah. And then there's a jerk at the table, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but other than that, I, I still love the game to death. I, I love many of the people that are in it. And it, it, it is, I mean, seriously, if I... Because I couldn't be a professional musician, um, poker was the very next best thing that could have happened to me professionally. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm having a blast, and I really hope that I'll get to go out and play live again. But listen, I'm going to hit you guys with strategy questions. So we'll just do them in, in like, rapid-fire format, okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy. I mean, if, if, if you don't have any other, uh, like... Oh, wait, I, I have general stuff to get to, but I want to hit you with strategy questions right, to make sure that. they get... Um, if you're representing a relatively narrow range with your bet, do you get to bet more, theoretically speaking, or do you just get to bet more, practically speaking, because nobody ever believes you? Like, let's say you flop a set on a dry board, right? The flop is queen, eight, four, and you check raise the guy, and you went with your pocket eights. Is check raising bigger, theoretically correct, because you're representing a narrow range, or is it just because nobody's ever going to put you on pocket eights and, and they're just going to give you a stack? Um, so the the bet size should mostly be a question of your like bluff to value ratio. So I think right. to, to sort of express the like, no one's going to believe you in, in a more theoretical terms, that means it would be very easy for you to be bluffing in this situation. Like you will have many weekends that are not pocket eights and uh, you have very few pocket eights. So for your opponent to, um, you know, if, if you made a small raise in this situation, you would not really be giving your opponent a terribly difficult decision. He would just sort of be like, well, you could pretty easily be bluffing and you're rarely going to have the eights and I'm getting a great price. Uh, so the fact that you could easily be bluffing is a reason why you want to charge your opponent a higher price. Essentially, um, the, the thing that he is buying is very appealing. <laughs> There's a very good chance that he's going to win. And consequently, you want to charge him a high price for it. In a situation where you are very unlikely to be bluffing, um, then the thing that he's buying is not very appealing. And consequently, you need to charge him a not very high price for it. Mm -hmm. um, does that so I guess the, the other implication of that, though, is like maybe you don't need eights to raise for value. You know, like if he's not going to believe you, like disbelieving you may take the form of calling you with like a queen with a bad kicker or ace high or 
eight seven suited when he has it so like maybe you can make that raise with hands that that are not eights uh in which case your your bluff to value ratio will not be so high and you in fact do want to offer your opponent a slightly better price in order to encourage him to call with those weaker hands so that you can also check raise like queen jack or something in that same situation got it perfect thank you it does indeed answer my question okay um here's here's my next question this one might be the biggest one why is everybody and it's and it's crept into live why is everybody opening like two and a half three x when a large majority of people in a large majority of games are calling like five to seven x with absurdly wide ranges it just seems like you're you're just leaving truckfuls of slansky dollars on on the table Carlos, I feel like this might be a, um, I mean, not, not that I don't have things to say, but this sounds like it might be in your wheelhouse. Well, my first, um, my first reaction to this question is um, the bigger you open, the, uh, the tighter you have to open. And so if you start just bombing it, uh, for, at least from a theoretical sense, um, I, I guess even uh, practical sense as well. If you just start bombing it with your opens every time, that's going to limit how wide you can open. And so, although with your big hands, you tend, I agree, basically what you're saying is, if you were to, if they're going to call everything anyway, then why not bet big with your big hands in order to make more money with your big hands? But I think the answer to that is because if you do that, then you can't make money from your weaker hands because you don't get to open um, the weaker, the the middle and bottom of your range uh, for that big size because then you kind of start to lose money with those hands. And so overall, if you want to make the most money, you want to... Um, uh, be able to play more hands profitably as opposed to trying to eke out more value with a small portion of your range um, at the expense of the the uh, middle and bottom of your range. I think the the more well, practical answer to that question is that that's what solvers say to do, and a lot of people don't really understand how to translate like solvers into um, what should I actually do when I'm playing? So I think the like the the second clause of your question of well you know p- people are willing to call much larger raises with bad hands, uh, that's not something that a solver is assuming, and consequently the solver is not going to tell you to to do that. If if I mean I think the node locking would be very complicated for like a multi way um, situation, but like if you could node lock and, and stipulate that your opponents are going to make bad calls for much larger raises, we probably would see solvers um, advocating doing that. So I think that as these kind of like charts that are generated by solvers that will just sort of spit out, you know, you can just Google this now, I think, and, and get you know pre-flop ranges for nine max, no limit hold'em or something like that. Um, and those are advocating a, a, a fairly small race size. They're, they're built around uh, using a fairly small race size and people want to be able to use that sort of chart, you know, to sort of look up like, oh, here are the hands that, that I should play from this position. And of course, that's not really the question that that chart is answering. It's like, if your opponents uh, all played pretty well, if you and your opponents played like equally well and you didn't have a lot of insights into how to exploit them, then this would be the um, the optimal raise size. When you're dealing with opponents who are too loose and too passive, I think it does generally make sense to use a... Um, a larger raise size because I mean, a you're taking advantage of their looseness, where like they're not correctly folding the weekends 
uh, that your your larger rage should be giving them the opportunity to get away from some weaker hands, and they're not doing that. And um, they're also because they're not three betting you very much, even when you have made a larger raise with like. I mean, and Carlos is right. You you're not going to want to have as wide of a range as you would for using a smaller raise size, but. Uh, even when you get three bet, you're not uh, or you're not getting three bet that much. So like even your weaker hands that are folding to three bets, you're not losing that much when um, when you do get three bet. So I, I think your general instinct that like people are maybe doing this in in bad situations or you know when they they could just exploitatively be using a large raise size, I think that's probably correct. Yes, and this this actually goes directly to. The next big bullet on my list. I made a list. I did my homework before I got on the, on the mic with you guys. But it, it was, and this, forgive me what I'm going to say. I mean, this is going to sound like heresy on this show. But I feel like all the GTO fascination hurts most players and virtually all low-stakes players for that very reason. They, they think they're playing against solvers, and they're not. They're playing against stupendously mortal, imperfect, bad human players. And so when they start thinking about, oh, you know, and I hear you, both of you guys talk about it all the time. And I jump up and cheer every time I hear it because, you know, you, you say, you know, am I being exploited if I fold? Well, I don't know. Am I being exploited if I call? Right. And I hear Carlos over here all the time always saying, yeah, I fold here. I don't care what the theory is. I fold here because he's always got it, right? Um, and so that really is the point, that everybody has been getting these GTO charts off Google and listening to Doug Polk and all this other stuff, and their opponents aren't doing that, and their opponents certainly aren't the opponents that Doug Polk has. Yeah, I, w I would say this was my experience for several years uh, when I was playing in low stakes, but I did find um, some value in using these things. And it's not it's not about using the stuff directly. It's about learning the lessons um, uh, on a fundamental level so you can apply it in different situations. Like, like one example, this is kind of going back a bit, but when you were talking about using the big opening sizes, um, you could probably get away with uh, in the lower stakes just you know getting around the problem of not being able to open a wide range if you use a big size you could probably get around that at lower stakes by just opening big with your big hands and open small with the the medium and weak stuff um, because obviously that makes you ridiculously exploitable but if your opponents aren't going to catch on to that and exploit you, then it's not a problem. And maybe that's just the, um, that could be the best uh, way to maximally exploit those player pools if you're very confident that you're not going to get exploited. And so right. uh, that that would be one solution. Yeah, I think the um, learning the GTO stuff and just applying it directly in the game that you're in if your opponents aren't good I think is going to be a mistake because they're often making mistakes themselves that you can easily identify and exploit. And I kind of, uh, I kind of view GTO. I almost view G playing uh, like wrote GTO straight from the solver in those sort of games as sort of a cop out. Uh, meaning that it kind of lets you off the hook from like having to like look for the leaks and exploit them. But right. as you 
as you start to get better, then your game should start looking at least closer to that. But even along the way, before you even start to, um, you know, play against tougher competition, you should be able to um, learn some fundamental lessons from the rote GTO strategy and then deviate from that um, in the games that you're in. And it teaches you how to deviate um, as opposed to just winking it like I used to do. <laughs> one, one of my you many, um, sorry, yeah. Adley. No, please go ahead, please. Uh, my, mine's going to be kind of long. That's right. fine. All right. One one of my many pet peeves is when people say GTO says to do X. Like GTO doesn't talk. Um, you didn't. It doesn't tell you to do anything, <laughs> and you didn't ask it that question. Like that's your interpretation of a solver output. Like when when you put something into a solver, you're asking a very specific question, and I don't think a lot of people even understand what that question is uh and you know to carlos's point like there there's a translation element from what was the solver output to what is the implication of that for the games in which i'm actually playing and the humans i'm actually playing against and i do think that for a, a poker player at a certain level of seriousness which is not the same as playing against a certain caliber of opponent like i think that the tool can be useful no matter who you're playing against it's a question of how seriously you personally are interested in, in taking the game like i think for people who are who are fairly new to studying poker you know my advice is not ever like sit down with a solver or even sit down with play optimal poker um but i think that there does come a point where like if you like i do think solvers and, and game theory are like the best tools for f available for studying poker if you're willing to put in the work to um learn how to use them correctly and how to like in interpret the results and translate them into your game and so i would say you know the, the the problem is people wanting a like a quick fix or the idea of i mean i remember this is uh i mean i guess this was kind of an early instance of, of game theory but um David Sklansky's book on Lemon Hold'em had uh, charts of hands to play from various positions. And, you know, this when I was very first getting started in poker, I was playing no limit, but I was like, well, I mean, how, how different really could the games be, you know? Like, <laughs> uh, and I don't really know what hands I should be playing from different positions, so I'm just going to, like, follow the charts. And, and, you know, I just wanted a place where I could, like, look up and get an easy answer of, like, what hand should I play from what positions? And, and there was a chart there that, that I misinterpreted to be answering that question. <laughs> and and right. I went with it. And uh, I feel like it's fundamentally the same thing that, um, that people are doing now. Right. Well, I'll, I mean, I want you to know I've read Play Optimal Poker twice. And I mean, like, I am coming from, as we've noted, because I've been around the game for a thousand years, it's amazing to sort of live through this renaissance is not the word, but this, you know, break the scientific breakthroughs that the game has gone through over the various years. And it's certainly only gotten faster in the last few years, and I'm delighted to be here for it. I really am. Um, I'm just, I, I do You were a tech worry. guy in a, in a previous life, right? Yeah, I was, I was a software engineer for a quarter century before I, I jumped out of that, joined the poker world. Yeah, so I, I think you're a lot better equipped than, than the typical, like, 1990s era poker player to, uh, you know, make sense of, of the modern era. Yeah, well, I mean... I, I do have a, a leg up in that sense, but I also have a leg down because I'm old and, and my brain isn't as fast as it used to be. But 
you know, that's it is really fascinating stuff, and I love learning it. And I don't want to understate the importance of the solvers and everything that comes out of them because it's freaking amazing. Like if you told me 25 years ago, yeah, computers are going to be able to crush No Limit Hold'em, I would have said, yeah, that's... I wouldn't have said that's ridiculous because I was in the computer industry and I knew what would happen if you underestimated what computers are going to do. But I would have said something to the effect of, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. Well, I've seen it and it's amazing. But I don't... I guess my point is, is I don't think it's... To, to your point, it's not being applied the way that people really need to be applying it and it has people you know working with you as a coach saying yeah well what if he's for betting me with ace five suited yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> he's for betting you ace five suited good for him now fold your jacks i got kind of i got kind of a um controversial um analogy for this like saying GTO um, is, I'm, I'm trying to um, get your words exact. Um, you didn't say GTO was a bad thing. Um, when you started this, like, how, how did you phrase it? Heresy. I said GTO. Uh, well, I, yeah, the heresy was of the form GTO thinking hurts okay. essentially many or all low stakes players. Right. So it hurts them to Andrew's point. Because, and I think to your point as well, because they're using it incorrectly. Yeah, it's, it's the not thinking that hurts them. Right. So, yes. yeah. so TTO not thinking. So it's not a bad thing just because most of the people who try to use it use it incorrectly in the same way that wearing masks during the pandemic is not a bad thing just because a lot of people don't wear them correctly. And so a lot of people will, you know, um, make these statements like masks don't work and yeah that's because a lot of people that are wearing masks are wearing it like beneath their nose or they're like you know using like a bandana um, instead of an actual mask but that doesn't mean masks don't work just because like the masses don't know how to use it correctly and the same thing applies to GTO um, and so you didn't say GTO don't doesn't work but I think a lot of people, including me, um, years ago, I would have made that sort of statement. And that's because most of the people who try to use it aren't using it correctly. But I guess, I mean, certainly that's true. But I guess what I worry about, and, and I'll get to this in a second, because this is all sort of proximate to an overall overarching thought and emotion I have about poker. But... GTO, the, the solvers are playing against themselves. So they're playing against very, very good players. And by and large, those of us that are playing in low-stakes games or even mid-stakes games are not playing against good players. And they are not going to be balanced, and they are not going to you know, do things correctly, and they're going to call far wider than a solver would. And so to the degree that you take these solver outputs, and, and we're all saying the same thing, if you, if you yeah. take them and you use them unfiltered, then bad stuff is going to happen. And I guess that's all I want to say. Right. So don't, so don't use them unfiltered, for one. And for, uh, secondly, you can 
tailor your deviations from the solver output to the mistake that you take that you think your opponent is going to make. And so, and a good a good example of this is something I've run across recently. Um, spots where you bet the flop, they call, and you check the turn, and then you get to the river with a marginal bluff catcher, and they lead. This is a spot where a solver does a good amount of calling because it expects them to have floated the flop with a pretty wide range. But because we know um, a lot of low stakes players don't understand like the um, value of back doors. Uh, sometimes they they overfold on the flop uh, for small when facing like small sizing like if you if you bet quarter pot on the flop your opponent i think is supposed to defend like 80 percent of their range um and, you know uh, close to it uh it's a little bit less than that but according to minimum defense frequency it's going to be around 80 percent most people don't defend that much a lot of the hands that they're folding are the hands that are supposed to become bluffs when the turn goes check check and then you know they bet the river but if they don't have those hands because they already folded them, then they're naturally going to be um, under bluffing on the river. So when the solver says call on, in, you know, on their, when they bet the river, you just go in and look at, okay, what are they bluffing with? What does the solver expect them to be bluffing with? And when you right. see that, okay, they're not going to be bluffing with that because they folded that on the flop. So now you're dealing with a different range than the solver's dealing with. And if you were to no lock that into the solver, the solver would say fold in those spots. But you don't even have to do that. You don't have to do that last step if you can just like uh, think for yourself and know that they're not going to have those hands. And that's kind of where the thing they always have it comes from is that people don't get to the river with a wide enough range in this scenario. And therefore even though the solver is bluff catching against another solver, it would not bluff catch against Leo or, or Leroy if you um, if you know lot Leroy's range in there. And so I think when you say the solvers playing against you know other solvers and people are just taking that people are just taking those outputs and playing them against non-solver humans, that's the the fault of the human <laughs> and so they have to kind of like correct that um if they want to um if they want to get something out of the solver yes i totally agree with that and the point i would add to that is even when they get to the river with a narrower range than the solver thinks they will they don't bluff as much as the solver thinks that they should because people just don't like to bluff as much when they have no equity true so, so I think I mean that's why if you basically just lose the call button on the river, you just you just do a lot better against most players. <laughs> so yes, I agree with that All for right. sure. I want to move away from that. Uh, um, one more strategy question: um, Can I open bigger in like let's say under the gun and under the gun plus one, just because? One, I have to get through more opponents, and two, because I'm opening an, opening a narrower range under the gun, I just get to put more money in with my best hands, but I don't become unbalanced because, like, if whenever I'm opening, let's say I'm going to open 4x, 
as a rule, but I decide to open 5x in the first two positions left of the blinds. Is that, can I do that? I think it's going to mean that the, the narrow, narrow range that you start with have, has to become even more narrow, even more narrow. But yeah, if you're okay with that, um, I think that's, um, that's probably um, fundamentally sound. If you, if you narrow your range a bit, then yeah, you can use a bigger opening size. Yeah, Dude, I, I worship at the altar of Tommy Angelo. I, my, my opening range in the early positions is pretty, pretty narrow. I, I think this is basically this, the same question as the first one about using a larger open raise size in general. I mean, I think there, there's something exploitative going on there. Um, I mean, that's, that's not what equilibrium solutions look like. Uh, part of that is like, you are, even if you are starting with a better hand than your opponents, you are starting with a worse position than they are. And that would arguably be a reason to want to put less money into the pot. Um, that you know, you, that your position is making it less likely that you are a favorite to win the pot. And you know, one of the things you're doing in early position is you don't necessarily know, um, or, I mean, you, you don't know what's going to happen behind you yet. You know, so whether or not you have a good hand or you like your hand or you're a favorite to win the pot or anything like that is going to depend a lot on what your opponents do behind you. So there's something to be said for not having committed a lot of money to the pot before you find out which players and what positions are going to choose to get involved. Are they going to re-raise? Um, so I, I, like, I, I think that there are some good theoretical reasons why you don't necessarily want to like shovel a lot of money into the pot fairly blind from early position. But I also think a lot of those same exploits we talked about earlier apply where people should recognize that you have a pretty strong range in early position and they should respond to that by being fairly tight themselves. If they're not doing that and they're willing to just sort of ignore the fact that you open an early position because they don't want to fold when they have two Broadway cards, then like there are good reasons to use a big <laughs> open raise size from early position to... Uh, amplify the magnitude of their mistakes. Right. Okay, cool. I, I, that was exactly the answer I was looking for across all of it, theoretical and practical, so thank you very much. All right, so let's, let's jump over because this is, this is the overarching thoughts and emotions I have about poker. Um, you know, as we've discussed, I'm old and I'm one of the few people left who remembers the battle days of poker. And this was, you know, pre-moneymaker, pre-WPT. There was no money in the game. The card rooms were all full of smoke. Did any of you guys ever play in a smoke-filled casino? Um, yes, I've been in casinos where when I leave, uh, I can smell smoke on my clothes. I don't, I don't know if I played much in those. I'm trying to think. There was like one in particular that is not coming to me now, but. Um, yeah, I've definitely um, I've definitely been around uh, a, a decent amount of smoke, but I didn't stay long. <laughs> the, the closest I've come, and Carlos, this could even be the time that you're thinking of because you did come to this casino with me once. the uh, The Rivers Casino in Pittsburgh, smoking is allowed in the casino, but not in the poker room. Uh, but even that, where the poker room was like somewhat, you know, it's kind of like a, in a, a bubble with like fiberglass walls or whatever the walls were made out of plexiglass. Um, you know, e even just like walking across the casino or to get there oh, yeah. and back uh my, my partner is very allergic to smoke so you know i would come home and like in in the sort of foyer of our apartment i would sort of strip out of everything that i had worn and and you know leave those clothes outside and put on different you know like it just that there was i had oh, yeah. that much smoke on me just from like walking through even though i was playing in a room that was nominally uh smoke free yeah, yeah I, you guys I, are <laughs> i think it, i think is the difference is 
and I wonder if Andrew feels the same way. Like I've been in like rivers, exactly. Like places like that where when I come out, I can tell that I've been around smoke. But when I'm there, I don't see like plumes of smoke like floating right. towards my face. It sounds like that's what you're describing. If you talk about the old days, man, like Garden City in San Jose, where I got my start playing poker, they had low ceilings, and you could not see across the room because of the cigarette smoke. Jesus. <laughs> and, and when I think about, like, when I think about what that was like, I was just like, God, did I, I would sit there for hours and hours and hours, and I would come out, and I just wanted to, like, burn my clothes, and I thought, <laughs> well, that's, that's probably equivalent to, like, a pack-a-day habit. Yeah. Just just being in there. But I like for me that's the perfect metaphor for what poker was like in the old days. Right? It was just like everything about it was smoke and no money because there wasn't there wasn't T V money and there wasn't young kid money and there wasn't online poker money and all this other stuff, right? And all I wanted to do is not go back to that. <laughs> and and I, I mean I don't think we're going back to the smoke, but what I what I fear sometimes is like with the solvers and with the tools and with the daily poker podcast, the good ones are getting better and the weak ones are getting worse. And and coming from the business side, obviously I was very interested in what do we do to keep the games healthy. I'm not concerned about Carlos winning more money or Andrew winning more money. I want the games to stay healthy. And remember, back in the old days, uh, and uh, Andrew, I know you were around for the old days, where you couldn't see the grasses of the savannah because it was covered with wildebeest and antelopes. <laughs> and it was a beautiful thing, right? And the lions would just basically like eat their fill every day and then go back to the tree and sleep. And it was, I mean, it was, for them, it was great. And whenever they killed a wildebeest, two more wildebeest would replace it. It was just, it was amazing to watch, but that's no longer the case, right? And so what I think about now is ecosystem health. And I started thinking about that when I was working for Poker Stars, but now I'm thinking about it simply as a guy who loves poker more than anybody and wants to see the game healthy and thrive for as long as I can keep playing and even after I can't keep playing anymore. And like, for instance, I'm just going to like run through a bunch of things like poker room managers. I am going on a rant. Stand by. Okay. <laughs> button, button, stra button straddle with the action starting to the left of the button. It's unconscionable. Okay. Okay, you guys agree, right? Um, yeah, I'm on board with that one. And no matter where the action starts, I think button straddles are bad. But I, I agree. agree. It's, it's worse if the blinds have to go first. Yes. I mean, I don't think we'll ever get rid of the button straddle. But um, as a specific case, Mike Nelson, uh, who runs the Pepper Mill in Reno, best poker room manager in the United States, um, starts the action under the gun no matter what, and then they jump over the straddle. And people say, oh, it's too confusing. Well, whatever. Learn to do it, right? But that one. Um, they don't allow players to run it twice. Why don't they allow players to run it twice? Because it slows the game down and they get less rake. What they don't realize is, is that if two people get all in for a buy-in, 
what you know one of them ends up with a double stack and the other one ends up busted and both of those people are in danger of getting up and leaving the game right true but if you yeah. have two people that have similar equities and they run it twice there's a really good chance that they're going to chop the pot and everybody's moderately happy and you don't run the risk of losing one or two seats out of your game well, and the, the slows the game down argument, I feel like, like the, the amount of time spent dealing the additional board is not very long at all. What slows the game down is when people are like, I don't know, do you want to run it twice? I don't know, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do. Right. Like, it should right. just be like on uh, <laughs> Poker Stars where you just have a, um, you know, you just have a button, a button that's like, I run it twice or I don't run it twice. And then you also avoid the like angle shooting where someone like, they held up two fingers and then they're like, no, 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 I was uh, pretending to smoke a cigarette. Right. I wasn't saying run it twice. Like, <laughs> Right. That's just, yeah, that's the part that's annoying. Wow, I thought that, you know what, Andrew, that was, I thought I had seen all the angles, which is always a dangerous statement to make, but I, I've never seen that particular angle, so there you go. Oh, yeah, pe people claiming uh, that they didn't agree to run it twice is very common. Wow, wow, poker players. This yeah, is why they, I say, uh, when you talk about live poker. <laughs> That doesn't happen okay. online. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Okay, match the stack. What a terrible idea. Do you know why online poker succeeded? Because early on, the online poker room said, how are we going to protect bad players from good players? I know. We'll cap the buy-in at 100 big blinds. And, you know, that way, Andrew and Carlos don't get all the money in one hand. Which was also and why it, initially it, no limit was not really. Uh, I mean, that was all, like I, at least I've heard that argument from you, Mason Malmuth and others that uh, limit hold'em is is sort of a much better ecosystem game in the sense that it takes bad players a long time to to go broke and they sort of have a more positive experience, get more value for them. I mean, not only is their sort of theoretical edge, uh, you know, they're not giving up as much in, in a theoretical sense when they're playing those games, but even if they were, it would still be a sort of more pleasant uh, experience for them. Oh, I I wrote that in Winning Low Limit Hold'em in the third edition oh, maybe because I, maybe that was, I was basically of you then. Uh, that was that the third edition came out after the you know the MoneyMaker WPT boom, and I I could kind of see the writing on the wall that No Limit Hold'em was going to just eat Limit Hold'em's lunch, and I said this is bad you know this is bad for the game because you know the good players have that much larger edge over the bad players. But, you know, that, that ship has sailed and there's nothing we're ever going to do about it. So. I actually had this, um, not quite argument, but uh, discussion with Matt Perky <laughs> on uh, Twitter a couple of years ago. And he did kind of bring me around to the idea that it may make sense for the biggest game in the room to have a, like unlimited or uncapped buy-in or like match the stack sort of thing. Because I think there are people who have a desire to play for a lot of money. Um, I think that there's no reason, like, I, I don't think, you know, one, three games or two, five games need to be as deep as they are, need to be matched to the stack or anything like that. But I think to have, like, one one big game where people are allowed to buy in as deep as they want, um, I think there is something to be said for, for that. I think there there is a type of uh, recreational player for whom that is a positive experience, and that's the game that that person is drawn to. I totally agree with that, 100%. If you want to have the biggest game in the room be uncapped, God bless you. And, you know, if 
if a you know car dealership magnet from Dallas wants to come in and play for stupid amounts of money, let it. Right? right. That's that's totally fine. But that isn't going. I mean, the honest the those are not the guys who are keeping the poker ecosystem running. Right. That's often a game that's built around that one person, and you should probably just do whatever that person wants to do. Right. So, Lee, so your initial reaction to No Limit, back in the Limit limit days, was that this is going to kill the game, all the good players are going to win all the money too fast, and there's going to be no money left in poker. Would you say that the exact opposite happened? And that there's more money in poker now than there were at the time when you when you when, you, when there was, was at the time when you made that statement. Um, it's really dangerous to try to predict how an alternate shard of the universe expands. Um, certainly, there is absurd. There is many multiples of the amount of money in poker now than there was when I was you know first in it. But does. Is that because of No Limit, or is that in spite of No Limit? Like, the WPT and Chris Moneymaker, in some unknown mixture, exploded poker. Does it not explode if it's in the limit form? Um, I don't know. What, what do you guys think? I'm going to ask Andrew this. Like, that's a really good question I hadn't thought about. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm also in the, like, the, what was it, the shards of the universe, the unexplored shards of the universe <laughs> theory. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's hard to speculate about these things, but, I mean, yeah, it sure seems to me that the um, the excitement of No Limit, the idea of being able to go all in, like, that's a concept people have latched onto so much. I mean, you just hear that, that term now gets used... Uh, it has it, made its way into so many aspects of like American culture where people are not even like thinking of it as, as an analogy to cards right. or anything like that. Um, so, I mean, I think that that idea is very powerful, very captivating for people. And then the, the um, ability to televise the game, which is like maybe not inconsistent with, with limit hold'em, but I, know, I, I think no limit does capture something of like what the sort of casual imagination of, of poker and, and a lot of the emotional investment that we have in poker, the idea of being able to make big bluffs and big calls, it's, it's much more exciting. Um, it, it is hard for me to imagine the game taking off in the way that it did uh, you know, in, in a limit hold'em or, or a stud context. So, oh my god, it's like watching paint. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Did I, did I put my thumb on the scale there. We, we, we can just do limit versus no limit. <laughs> So here's my point. Like, all these fears of the game dying hasn't really come true. And I can tell you that I can't speak for Andrew, but I'll say for myself as someone who studies the game a lot and have, I've really dedicated my life to um, exploiting the bad players as much as I can. I'm not making a million dollars a year. So right. most people, most pros aren't studying as hard as I am. And so I don't think, like, we're, we're, like there's two ends of the spectrum here. One, players like me who are trying really hard to take every dollar from the bad players aren't really succeeding <laughs> um, in terms of, like, you know, getting all the money. I'm getting, you know, my fair share and I'm happy with it. But, you know, I'm not making a million dollars a year. On the other end of the spectrum is that 
poker in America, I don't think the money will ever dry up because money is not real. Like all this is just like, like all this like, like this is something that was seen at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, I can't remember ex the exact phrase, but I saw a tweet that I just really loved, where somebody said something along the lines of, "America is uh, maybe just the world, but probably particularly America is just a bunch of broke people working at broke jobs." To pay for um, houses owned by broke broke banks that are financed by a, a broke government. So basically, that's one way of saying that the whole system seems to be built on a house of cards. And so the money in poker is not going to dry up because it's all like you know unbacked <laughs> uh, U.S. dollars anyway. <laughs> like all of this shit is like just fake. It's all fake. So as long as America t continues to be um, run in that way, the money's not going to dry up. And the good players who are working as hard as I am aren't getting good enough to take all that fake money fast enough. So I don't think, I don't think we have anything to worry about. I don't know if Nate's going to listen to this, but if he is, I guarantee you he has never regretted leaving the show more than at this moment. <laughs> 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 Why would that would that have launched Nate? I, I think Nate would have had something to say in response to that. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll look forward to Nate's uh, <laughs> op-ed. <laughs> uh, yeah. One one more thing while we're on the subject of live poker, Carlos, forgive me. Bomb pots, um, particularly <laughs> single board bomb pots. And you guys were actually discussing bomb pots like last week on the Daily Poker Podcast, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And um, it's it's the same thing. It's kind of, you know, it's it's things that cause players like if you go in and you play bomb pots, every dealer change or whatever, your evening re results may very well essentially consist of how well you did in the bomb pots. Right. Um, and. I, I don't think that's healthy. It, it would be like if I sat and played two five all night and then went and jumped in a twenty five fifty game for thirty minutes. It was a twenty five fifty. Yeah, it would, that would like all my results for the evening would really be tied up in however well I did in the twenty five fifty game. And the bomb pots have a similar kind of effect. I will say that is exactly how my home games went back when I was in like high school and college and just sort of playing with, with friends for yucks is we would play a bunch of sort of real poker for a few hours and then the game would end with everyone just playing guts or, you know, one of those, one of those like extreme gambling games, which are mostly luck based and the stakes are much higher and that kind of determine the outcome of, of everything. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's a big audience for that, <laughs> and I think that those are the people that you know it, it it introduces it makes the game a lot more gambly, and that probably does make a less good experience for some people. But I think the people you most want to be playing with are the people who want that that gamble and introducing a big element of gamble. Uh, I see the appeal. I mean, I I think you're right that ideally it would be done in a, in a um, a less skillful way uh so you know one of the things that i've seen done um 
is doing a, a waterfall for for rake which is kind of the same thing but the the board gets this and these are like in, in higher stakes games where um rake is paid time often rather than each individual right. person putting up seven dollars and the dealer has to make change for it, it's kind of a time-consuming process you'll just have the dealer deal out uh you know just run the board once and then whoever gets the best hand um you know there are everyone puts up like a hundred dollars or something you run the board right. once mm-hmm. whoever wins the pot they win the, you know they win it all but then they pay time out of their out of their winnings uh, and so there's no sure. there's no skill involved there but there is a big element of, of gambling and i mean that still has the problem of like you win a few of those and, and that might trump whatever else happens for you that night but um i think but i think the, the bigger problem is not that there's the like the the swinging or gambling element to it i think a lot of people want that i think the problem is that it's attached to uh you know th- there's also a pretty high skill factor in bomb pots that i think a lot of people don't appreciate or at least like the gap oh, right yeah, now and understanding sure. between like good players and bad players on how to play bomb pots is, is quite large so i think like that's the bigger problem is it is a sort of lambs to the slaughter situation uh, I would I would I would say to that the people who want to gamble enjoy these sorts of um um little twists on the game and the people who don't really shouldn't care one way or the other and I'm one of these people um so like if the game is going to be more gambly and that's going to cause me to like not have a winning session um I should be okay with that as long as I have an edge um sure um, like I think Tommy is the one that says like you know poker is just like one long session like your their poker life is one long session so yeah if you, Clancy you know, said that Tommy can't take credit okay okay <laughs> well I think I maybe heard Tommy say that Skolansky said was, it he was quoting he was quoting yes, Skolansky I promise yes, you yes but but yeah it's like because uh, I, I can remember playing cash games where they would do some sort of like, uh, I forget what they called it, but some sort of like flip at the night where you just like put in some money and just run out the board and see who wins. Like, always hated that. But uh, Andrew was the one who convinced me that, you know, that's something I should do to keep the bad players happy because it's like a zero, um, it's like a neutral equity um, thing anyway. And so at that time, uh, I was concerned about you know being up or down at the end of the night, but since then I've learned that that really doesn't matter. Right, and I'm not concerned about you or the good players or you know what I what I'm really concerned. I mean, realistically, what I'm concerned about is about onboarding, and you know this actually kind of flows into the other thing that I worry about is the the attractiveness of the game and the welcomingness of the game to other people. And, you know, it's interesting, Andrew, because back on uh, podcast number five, we discussed getting women into poker. And I guess we're going back, what, seven years now or something like that? Close to 10, I think. And I think it would have been 2012 okay, if we had you on there. Well, there you go. Okay. So, look, I'm going to, I'll be, can you schedule me for 2032? <laughs> <laughs> but, like, we've done a shit job of getting women in there. Um, I, I have to say that the game is much friendlier to gay people now than it was 10 years ago, and I'm happy for that, but it's still, it, it's still a pretty white male, pretty misogynist, homophobic environment, um, and it's, it's, it's a scary, life poker is a scary place, Right? 
True. And I don't want it to be a scary place. I want it to be a fun, welcoming place where people realize that this is the greatest game that can be played with cards. And when and, and bomb pots just throw this great, you know, you're just like, well, wait a minute, I don't, you know, I don't know what I'm doing here, and and it's it's just another thing to me that is scary and produces these giant swings and i don't think giant swings are what is going to make a newbie feel comfortable okay see now i know where you're coming from i was a little confused before but when you talk about the um, ecosystem and the growth of the game long term you're not so much talking about keeping the majority of the players are bad players and so we're not talking about keeping the bad players happy who tend to be like gambling types which would kind of argue in favor for stuff like uh, bomb pots. You're talking more so about uh, making it easier for new players to onboard. And I do think for that, you do want to like make it a little bit more simpler and easier to understand. And not have these giant, you know, like somebody gets, you know, work plays all night and they get, you know, they kind of, they have their $200 buy-in and it's $175 or it's $225 and they've had an evening full of fun. And now a bomb pot breaks out and they get all in with ace-king on an ace-high board because they don't know any better. And, you know, now they're busted. And they're like, poker sucks. <laughs> you know what? That was my exact reaction the first time I played blackjack. I play. I should say the first and only time I played blackjack. I put the money, like because I grew up. We we played um, twenty one uh, at home, and blackjack seemed very similar. So I was, you know, I was. Uh, I think I was at Planet Hollywood. I can't remember what casino I was in, but I put like twenty five dollars down, thinking I was about to play twenty one, and I lost the money so fast, and I don't even know what went wrong, and they don't like take the time to tell you how you lost or why you lost and just move on to the next hand. And I was like, fuck that. I'm out of here. But, yeah, I bet you a lot of new poker players who kind of, like, find themselves in these environments with, like, double board bomb pots and all this crazy stuff probably have the same experience. And, yeah, I was one and done with blackjack, and a lot of those people will be one and done with poker. So that does seem like a problem. And it's, it's another reason why angles piss me off so much. Um, and and the tolerance of angles and all that silliness um, pisses me off because it's the same thing. It it, it the tolerance of homophobia and the uh, you know misogyny and everything else that comes with it. It it's like I I hate seeing the game that I love treat newcomers like you better cover yourself in Kevlar before you sit down. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think yeah, fix ideally, this, fix this, Andrew. <laughs> I feel like ideally there would be more of an onboarding pro. You know, like there would be a time, and I've seen a little bit of this. Like Maryland Live, um, at least used to do a thing. Um, like on on Sunday mornings, uh, they would have like a, a ladies' poker brunch, 
And I don't know if you absolutely had to be a lady to participate in it or, you know, what they were checking for or anything, but, um, (laughs) it it seemed like a good time. Um, and you know, it was, it seemed like very casual fun. They served some like croissants or whatever, you know, like baked goods and there were a bunch of, I I got the sense, I mean, I recognized a few people from, you know, regulars in the poker room who were there, but a lot of faces I did not usually see in the poker room were there and you know obviously that's a combination of of new players plus trying to hit a particular demographic but i think even just having a like um i mean i guess this is another hard thing to to test for but trying to have something that's like only for new i mean i guess if they have your players card they have a sense of how much you've played trying to have games that are like specifically for newer players or promotions that are specifically for newer players having a time like they do for table games where they teach you how to play um yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a lot we could be doing that was sort of targeting them rather than just assuming like, well, we just always have to assume in, in any poker game there might be you know brand new players or people who are kind of trying it out for the first time, and we have to make sure that that experience is is tailored for them. I think ideally we just have you know different um, a different environment for that. Yeah, and actually some of the online sites and poker stars did try that, mm-hmm. but of course as soon as you that. had you know, you had what you thought was a ring-fenced game for newbies. All the lions were looking for holes in the fence, right? I definitely, I definitely played as a beginner's game when I wasn't a beginner. I, I, I definitely remember that. Now, when I was a beginner to live poker, um, the way I kind of, like, cut my teeth um, was through barley games, where it's not really, mm-hmm. it's not for real money. And so... Yeah. That seemed to be a little bit uh, an, a more welcoming environment, um, and you know the mistakes that I made were not like bankroll busting <laughs> because there was no bankroll, and so that kind of allowed me to like you know get the mechanics down, and then I kind of graduated to uh, real money poker live, and I kind of I knew what I was doing um, by that point, or at least I had a better idea. I think bar leagues are probably a fantastic place for people to, you know, to learn and, as you say, get the mechanics down in a friendly, welcoming environment and a familiar environment. It's Bob's Bar. They're there every Thursday yeah. night for the, for the, you know, cheese sticks anyway. So, you know, add some poker to it. I, th- I think that's great. But, yeah, you know, I, I, that's probably where I want to close is that I love the game. I, I love the game of poker. I continue to love it, and I'm I'm enjoying studying it, trying to get better at it. But what I'm really thinking about a lot these days is how what makes poker healthy, what makes it unhealthy, and how do we make it healthy and happy, you know, going forward. Well, we appreciate you thinking about that because there aren't too many people with the uh, breadth of perspective that you you have on that and the amount of real-world experience you have doing that in different contexts. So please do keep the ideas coming. <laughs> I, will, I will do my best. And, most, and finally, I want to thank you guys for everything you do. I love your whole vibe on the show. I miss Nate, and please give Nate my best regards the next time you speak to him. Um, but I, I just so appreciate the, the, the vibe and the positivity that you guys both bring. I love the show. I love the daily podcasts. And uh, please keep doing them because they are how I have my morning coffee. Thanks very much, Lee. It's, it's very awesome. flattering to know you're out there listening. Thanks. Yes. Have a good day, guys.
Así es. Devotion of a car, my light of the fair passage of a bill.